meaningful leadership in prayer. We were praying in the prayer meeting this morning, and I believe it was Janice Narvison just mentioning how this situation in Ukraine might also increase our understanding and compassion for refugees that are right here from Afghanistan. And so you've got an opportunity in your bulletin there to think about that, talk to Dave and Mindy there. I think we perhaps understand a little more about the plight of the refugee. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, please. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We began this series last week. I'm going to pick it up in chapter 1 and go all the way through chapter 2. So it's a lengthy unit. It's a lengthy unit. But give your attention, please, to the preaching of, sorry, the public reading, rather, the public reading of God's Word, and allow God's Word to minister to you. I'd like to lead us in prayer to that end, and then Sharon's going to read for us. Spirit of God, we ask you to use your living and active Word your living and active word to minister to our hearts and minds, to orient us, lead us, and help us even now. We ask you for this in Jesus' name. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also, also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. 
and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do that comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is also a vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart from which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give it to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Sharon. Viktor Frankl was an Austrian neurologist and Holocaust survivor. In his book, based on his experiences in a Nazi concentration camp, Frankl said, one could survive almost anything if one found meaning in life. That from a man who survived the Holocaust. One could survive anything if one found meaning in life. The problem is, how will you find that meaning? You can survive or endure almost anything if you find meaning in life, but, but how are you going to find that? And how will you know if you found the real thing? In 1990, I was working in a bar in Santa Barbara using my newly minted economics degree. One evening, a guy followed me in 
Turned out he was a Christian. He began a conversation with me and asked me this question. I'd never been asked this before. He asked me, what are you living for? I didn't know how to answer. My mind went through what I had interest in, what I desired. I said, well, maybe owning land, having some acreage. <laughs> that was all the meaning I could think of. If someone stopped you today and said, what are you living for? How would you answer? What would you say? House, marriage, kids, grandkids, job, career, retirement. What would you identify and how's that going to work out for you? Will that thing or that person or that change deliver meaning for you ultimately? Well, today you get to find out. Today, we're taking on a, an exploration of all that could possibly deliver meaning in this world. We're going to follow it in three stages. Let's see where this exploration for meaning and purpose takes us. Three stages. I'll call the first the quest by wisdom, but with wisdom in quotation marks. So see my air quotes. The quest by wisdom. The narrator has now stepped aside and the preacher steps onto the stage introducing himself in verse 12. I, the preacher, chapter 1, verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. As we said last week, perhaps Solomon or I think more likely a Solomon-like persona being used here. Either way, Verse 13, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom, by wisdom, all that is done under heaven. He wants to search out all that is done, all that is possible in this life, in the here and now, and he will pursue this quest for meaning by wisdom, by the means of wisdom. Sounds good. But he says next, it is an unhappy business. Literally, an evil business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He says in verse 14, I have seen everything that is done under the sun in this life, in the here and now. And behold, it is vanity. It's vapor. It's like trying to grab steam and striving after wind. Verse 17, he wants to know wisdom and madness. Revelry and folly, foolishness. That seems strange. Seems to be some cracks in his foundation of wisdom. And I think if we look back here, we can see why. Look at verse 14 again. He says, I have seen with my eyes, I have seen and evaluated Everything done under the sun. I have seen, observed, and evaluated by my senses. Verse 16. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom. Literally, I have looked, I have seen, and so gained wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. One commentator, Craig Bartholomew, notes 
what he calls the preacher's autonomous epistemology. That's a fancy way of saying what he knows is based on him. What he knows is based on himself. What he sees, observes, experiences, that's the wisdom he's using here. So just because you see the word wisdom in this passage does not mean it's the same kind of wisdom used in other parts of the Bible. For instance, in the book of Proverbs, wisdom starts with the fear of the Lord, with reverence for God. That's where wisdom starts. That's not where the preacher starts. Not here. The preacher starts with himself, what he can see, observe, experience. There's a different kind of wisdom he seems to be using. The preacher begins his quest like an Enlightenment philosopher. The Enlightenment was an 18th century intellectual movement. It led to things like the Industrial Revolution and the scientific method, great technological advances, but it also brought a massive shift in authority from revelation to reason, from divine revelation, what God says, to human reason, what we say and what we decide. And that's how we operate today, isn't it? In 2017, Aaron Rodgers, who is perhaps my favorite quarterback in the NFL, in 2017, he said he didn't want to affiliate with the label Christian anymore, that he was on a path to a different kind of spirituality. When asked what the issue was, he said, quote, ultimately, ultimately, it's, with it, it's that binary systems don't resonate with me anymore. Binary systems like right and wrong, <laughs> truth and error, just not his thing anymore. That's the shift I'm talking about. That's a different kind of, quote, wisdom. That's what's happening here, it seems. There's more of a man-centered wisdom than a God-centered wisdom. And that's why you see this, this struggling happening through the passage. In other words, you need the right starting point to find real meaning. You need to use the right lens. If your wisdom, your observations are your starting point, you're going to end up in the same place going, vanity, vapor. When people say, and, and I understand this, they say, I see so much suffering in the world. I see so much suffering. Either God is not real or he is not just. There is real suffering. Look at Ukraine today. But are we to decide if God is just or not? Today, a lot of Christians are saying things like, I can't accept the Bible's teaching on X, so I reject X. I can't accept the Bible's teaching on an eternal hell, so I reject that. And they are, as it were, deconstructing that way. And certainly it's good to deconstruct past hurtful experiences or deconstruct toxic church cultures. But not good if we set ourselves over God's word to deconstruct 
it. So there seems to be a different kind of wisdom here, leading to, secondly, secondly, what I would call the experiment with pleasure. The experiment with pleasure. Now look at chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Enjoy yourself. I'm going to indulge in every pleasure imaginable. But he gives his conclusion up front in the rest of verse 1. Also vanity. Meaning was a vapor. Laughter in verse 2 can't even suffice. And then he tells us how he got there. Verse 3. Verse 3. I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. The latest IPA. My heart still guided me with wisdom. Maybe alcohol will bring meaning, or at least I can dull the pain. Then he tries accomplishments. Verse 4, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Who doesn't want a nicer, larger house, vacation homes, a newer car, a better you fill in the blank? That'll provide meaning, won't it? Satisfaction, purpose. He goes on, verse 7. I bought male and female servants. I had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. He had land. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. So it's power, it's wealth, it's, it's culture. He's got singers. He's bought his own band. Plenty of sex. It's consumerism and hedonism to the max. It's the good life. It's the American dream. But does it deliver as advertised? That's what you should ask. Does it deliver as advertised? Well, before we answer that question, notice a couple problems with the experiment. In verse 4, he says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards. What's it say? For myself. Verse 5, I, I made myself, for myself, gardens and parks and planted them all kinds of fruit trees. Verse 6 again, I made myself. Verse 8, I gathered for my self. That repetition's intentional. The quest was all about himself. And notice in verse 5, the preacher talks about a garden with all kinds of fruit trees. Does that ring a vague bell? A garden with all kinds of trees you can eat from. Sounds like the Garden of Eden the paradise that God had made. Commentators think the preacher may be trying to recreate Eden and, in effect, play God. You see, when it's about you and your own personal paradise, creating your own personal Eden, meaning is going to be a vapor. It's not going to satisfy. I needed to replace my my 3G iPhone, because 3G is being uh, 
done away with for some reason. So I went to the AT&T store, and I got not the latest iPhone, but one model back from that iPhone. But nice phone. I mean, great resolution, much nicer resolution on the screen. It's faster, way better camera, very exciting for a day or two. And now it's just my old phone with lint from my pocket covering it. Four years ago, I bought a used Honda Accord Sport. Very exciting. Four years later, it's just my old rattle trap. And I look with envy on the newer Honda Accords. We watched last weekend the movie Wall Street, where a very wealthy stockbroker is asked, what's your number? to walk away and live? What amount of wealth can you be content with? What's your number? The guy said, more. When it's your own personal Eden, friends, when you're trying to create your own personal paradise, you end up like the Rolling Stones saying, I can't get no satisfaction. But that's not the ultimate problem here. The real problem, the ultimate problem, is what comes next. Verse 14. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness, Yet, and yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? He says, yeah, I mean... Being wise is better than being a fool, I grant that, but the same event happens to both. You die. Death is the great equalizer. No matter how much wealth you store up, no matter how nice your house might be, how great your job, how lavish your lifestyle, what happens to you is exactly the same thing that happens to everyone else. You die. You built a nice sandcastle in front of the incoming tide. Congratulations. Plus, verse 19, plus, in verse 19, who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he will be the master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun in this life. He's saying, you'll leave all your stuff to someone else. You don't know if they're going to be wise or foolish. You have no idea. So that what doesn't go in the dumpster will probably get squandered anyway. See, our pleasures, friends, our pleasures can't deliver ultimate meaning because we must reckon with death. Anyone see the Netflix comedy, Don't Look Up? Anybody see Don't Look Up? I saw a couple of hands, maybe. A pair of astronomers discover that a massive comet is heading to Earth. It's going to annihilate the entire population. So this pair of astronomers end up going to the White House to brief the president, played by Meryl Streep. The president responds, quote, you cannot go around saying to people that there's a 100% chance they're going to die. Facts 
facts cannot get in the way of victory in the midterm elections. Oh, that's a humorous and insightful point, isn't it? That's how we are. It's simply ridiculous to deny the reality of death. That's the big problem here. That you and I have an expiration date, like the milk carton in your refrigerator. That expiration date might be tomorrow, or 10 years from now, or 50 years from now, if you're younger than me. But it's coming. And you will only find meaning, purpose, significance in your life, ultimately, if you live your life in light of that coming day. So, so finish this sentence for me. Just mentally, finish this sentence. For me to be happy, I need blank. What do you put in the blank? For me to be happy, I need blank. What's that for you? If you say, like the preacher, for me to be happy, well, I need wine or beer or more wealth or a different house or a newer car or more power or more pleasure, you won't be happy for long, not ultimately. Those things can't deliver ultimate meaning for you because you're going to die. So see where he lands then. See thirdly in his exploration, the Godward lessons. See thirdly, the, the Godward lessons we're to draw. It's, it's almost jarring after what we've seen. The experiment has taken the preacher to the end of his rope. He's played out the full tether. As much as he tried, he could not find meaning apart from God. And I think you see that in two ways. First, in light of God's gifts. In light of God's gifts. Look at verse 24 with me, please. Verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? It almost seems to come out of left field, doesn't it? The preacher now acknowledges the simple pleasures in life, eating, drinking, and a job well done. He says, these are gifts from the hand of God, gifts that you can find some enjoyment in, in this life. One of our members told me that the book of Ecclesiastes had helped her in the past to enjoy putting cream in her coffee. Isn't that a great illustration? You can put cream in your coffee. That's what he's saying. Christianity is not about asceticism. It's not denying yourself legitimate pleasures. God is not a cosmic killjoy. Put some cream in your coffee. There is enjoyment to be had in this life for now as a gift from God. But, but keep all this in context. Remember the journey we've been on. These pleasures cannot 
ultimately deliver meaning and satisfaction and purpose because you were made for God. These are gifts from the hand of God. These gifts are to direct you to the giver himself. I think C.S. Lewis put this in a way I cannot simply improve upon. It's a little bit of a lengthy quotation, but track with me, please. He said, God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on gasoline, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. Catch that? A car runs on gasoline. God designed you to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way. God cannot give us a happiness and a peace apart from himself. Because it is not there. You were made for God. He's the fuel on which you were designed to run. So let the gifts from his hand direct you to him. Enjoy the simple pleasures. Yes, put cream in your coffee. And see those gifts as from his hand to enjoy in this life. Teenagers, I mentioned this last week, but so often you're at a stage in life where you want to explore the world, and I, I get that. You want to explore the world, but you're thinking that you're missing out on something. Hear me. There are appropriate pleasures in this world. They're gifts from God. Ecclesiastes acknowledges that, but you must see them as gifts from him intended in appropriate ways to point you back to him. He's the fuel you're supposed to run on. The gift is not where you find meaning. The gift points you to God. So there's a lesson about God's gifts here. But also, I think, a, a second lesson about God's wisdom. A second lesson, a second Godward lesson about God's wisdom. God's wisdom. Look at verse 26 now, please. Verse 26. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner... He is given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. So the preacher is still crying out, vanity, vapor. Maybe because death is still in view here. Death still is a final obstacle. Maybe that's why. But now notice God is the one giving wisdom to those in right relationship with him. Yet to the sinner, one who misses the mark, they gather and collect and then give it all to the one who pleases God. Recall how we said at the start, 
the preacher seemed to be using his wisdom, not God's wisdom. How his wisdom didn't seem to line up with the wisdom of Proverbs, but now it does. It's very interesting. Verse 26 sounds very much like Proverbs 13, verse 22. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth, the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. That sounds like verse 26. Maybe it's out of resignation. Maybe he's sort of throwing his hands up in the air. Ah! But there's a shift to God as the giver of wisdom and knowledge and joy. Peter Kreeft describes Ecclesiastes as a, quote, a perfect silhouette of Jesus. A perfect silhouette of Jesus. The stark outline of the darkness that the face of Jesus fills. Think about a silhouette. It's all darkness, all shadow in the middle. But the outline of that darkness draws some shape, often someone's profile. The darkness of Ecclesiastes draws in silhouette the profile of Jesus. In this passage, this contrast of wisdom, maybe a wrestling match between two kinds of wisdom, it finds an echo in the New Testament, an echo in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul writes, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? The world did not know God through wisdom, through its wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly, folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, called by God, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The darkness of this passage in Ecclesiastes draws the silhouette of the one crucified for our sins. The silhouette of the one who's risen from the grave, conquering death. The silhouette of the one reigning right now and who is returning, friends. The wisdom we find in Christ is the wisdom that dealt with our greatest enemy, death itself. Scripture tells us that the Savior abolished death. In Ecclesiastes, it is the immovable obstacle of death. The New Testament says the Savior abolished death. Imagine that. Abolished death. He's brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, this good news. That's what you need. That's the darkness drawing the silhouette of Jesus. I need someone to abolish death. When he visited his his friend Lazarus' funeral, Jesus made this incredible promise. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That's what we need. If you have Christ, if you are in him by believing, though you die, yet shall you live. As Frankel said, you can survive almost anything if you find meaning in life. 
You can endure almost anything if you find meaning in life. And the way to find meaning truly, lastingly, is in God through Jesus Christ. The resurrection and the life, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So put cream in your coffee, friends. Enjoy good gifts from His hand. But find meaning, find purpose, find significance and satisfaction not in living for you, not in creating your own personal Eden, not in creating your own personal paradise, but in Christ and in living for Him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you for this darkness so profoundly drawing your perfect silhouette, taking us right to where we need to go, to you. Help us to do that right now, we ask you to hope in you, trust in you, find our ultimate satisfaction, meaning, and purpose in you. Keep us, we ask you, from the fool's gold of trying to find lasting meaning and purpose in anything else. Help us to rejoice in your good gifts in the here and now. And yet bank on your promise that though we die, yet shall we live. We ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we're going to celebrate Christ who conquered death by taking the Lord's Supper together. So those who are going to serve us, please prepare to do so.